0: Welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect authors with new listeners and provide advice to aspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. So, hi there, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for coming back to the Authors of the Pacific Northwest. And today I have the privilege of introducing you to Elise Hooper. So, Elise, say hello to the listeners. Hi, everyone. So, Elise, we are so happy to have you. So, uh, listeners, I'm going to go ahead and just say we're recording this mid COVID <laughs> life, and so um, there may be some information and talk about that. But we really want to talk about um, a book that's coming out for Elise. Her, I think it's your third book, right? It is, yes. Yeah. So, we're going to dive into that pretty heavily. But first, Elise, why don't you share with us a little bit about yourself, and let's start out with what state in the Pacific Northwest that you currently live in.
1: Well, I live in West Seattle here in um, Washington state. Uh, I actually, we've had something that's been even a bigger deal. Well, long-term, it's certainly going to be a bigger deal than the pandemic, which is we are connected by a bridge to the rest of Seattle. Do you know where I'm going? I know what you're talking about. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And the bridge, they, a couple weeks into the pandemic, when everything closed, they discovered it has all these huge cracks and they've closed this bridge for at least a couple of years and probably beyond. So oh. I kind of live on an island now.
0: <laughs> Dang, the beautiful thing about living on an island is seclusion a little bit, but not yep. that much seclusion, right?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and we're not really set up to be an island. So while we do have a water taxi, I mean, we don't have a car ferry or anything. There's a really long drive around that will only get worse as people kind of oh, start leaving wow. their homes more. And yeah.
0: So there's a lot of unknown
1: up here moving ahead. <laughs>
0: Well, I tell, so I have listeners from all over the United States. A lot of them are from the Pacific Northwest. And I tell a lot of people that I meet or through the podcast or even just through life, you know, Seattle is one of the most beautiful places in the world, but don't move there because we already have enough people. <laughs> and now look at that, you know, people are getting stuck. So yeah. how crazy is that, right? It is crazy. It's going to be a real
1: lifestyle changer for a lot of us. I mean, I work from home. My husband works only a couple blocks away and my kids go to school only a few blocks away. But but still, it, it's, it's going to be a really big deal. Yeah,
0: but to be able to get out, enjoy the city life a little bit, that's going to be the challenge right there. Right.
1: Know? And until social distancing measures... Right. I mean, I guess while they're in place, it's, it is easier to get in and out because traffic isn't so bad on this drive around. But when, I mean, then we really can't take the water taxi either until of course, more of us can pile into these things. So a real adventure.
0: We are (laughs) living in crazy times. We certainly do. Oh, I love it. I love it. So um share with us a little bit about your working background because I did the research so I know a little bit about you but my listeners I'm sure are very curious you and I have a little bit of background similarities so that's fun but share what you do in your day job if you're not writing full-time so I'm not sure if you are
1: (laughs) I am now but I was teaching high school English and history for for a number of years um at a range of different schools. I taught at a Title I high school and um, some programs for, for like smaller programs for students. And I taught at private schools. So I got a real range behind me. And um, yeah, it was English and history. I primarily kind of merge the two into an American studies class whenever I could. Nice. And I loved that. I mean, I think most students enjoy that too, to really bring the history and writing of the time together. And so I miss that in many ways, but I'm also teaching just now I'm teaching various writing workshops. I have one even tomorrow or I teach for Hugo house here in Seattle. Yeah. um, Workshops here and there. I have a novel class coming up in the fall for them. So Lots of different things happening.
0: Oh, good. So you're staying in teaching, especially that age range. So tell us a little bit about what Hugo is so individuals might not know if they're not in that area. Well, Hugo House does have youth
1: programs, but I, will, I do primarily teach adults when I'm teaching oh, okay. there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really, you can go online to you know, Google Hugo House and you'll, they'll bring up the course catalog. And it's, I mean, there's a huge range, everything from poetry and nonfiction to flash fiction, memoir everything is really offered there. Yeah. So it's it's, it's a really amazing resource. In fact, I took classes there uh, for years before any of my books were published. So
0: very great. Well, my listeners know that in show notes, I always add resources that have been mentioned in the podcast. We'll make sure that's in there. Um, My website has grown into a huge depository of resources, which is really, really cool. So, so very cool. So let me ask you this question. Um, So, Probably you have a good list because you're, you're a history buff, you know, and then an English writer. So we're told all the time as authors, we need to be pretty avid readers. Mm-hmm. So currently what is on your reading shelf? If you go to bed and you're pulling up a book, what are you reading? Well, I'm actually reading a book,
1: um, that will be released sometime next spring, I think by another, uh, writer from the Pacific Northwest, Kristen Ooh. Beck, um, oh, it's yeah. historical fiction, haven't had her on the show well she hasn't it'll be her debut novel it's coming out yeah (laughs) for some time um gosh I mean I always have so many books actually happening all at once I need to start the guest book for a a book club I'm in as a participant I visit a lot of book clubs as an author but I I love being able to kind of sit back and just be a reader every now and then
0: it's kind of nice isn't it
1: it is
0: (laughs) I think it's important yeah, I don't think people realize that when you become an author and you start putting yourself out there, you, you're you like constantly on stage at times, and it's just so nice to sit back and let somebody else do it, you know, and just absolutely not be in charge and just talk about books and not everything else around it. <laughs> yeah, I
1: find it really um, kind of allows me to scratch that itch to being an English teacher and just, okay. I mean, I love to talk about the journey I've been on with my books, but I really love to talk about other
0: books, too. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a literature fanatic and love love um, English literature, all of the time period literature, and that's why I'm working on my first historical fiction novel. But I'm also a librarian, um, so. Can't help myself, you know. Yeah. History and researching and stuff is like my thing. My listeners have heard this over and over again, but it's like a big thing. Um, so, when did you realize that you were an author? Did it like dawn on you early on, where you're always telling stories and writing, or did this come to you later in life? You know, kind of give us that process and what you went through.
1: Well, I've always been a bookish person. I would say. I mean, as a kid, I was an avid reader, and really, um, I grew up right outside of Boston. And I used to take drama classes at Louisa May Alcott's Orchard House. And so really, you know, from some of my earliest memories, I was in the home of a famous author and and could see this tiny desk that she wrote Little Women at. And, and right then and there, that's kind of, that was really when I first learned that people write books. They don't just magically sort of appear on bookshelves. You know, it's up to us to write them. And so, I was always interested in being an author. I would definitely say it sort of took me a long time to get my courage up to try it myself. I worked in journalism for a while. And then of course I was teaching high school English. And so it really was when my younger daughter was about to go to kindergarten that I told myself I was going to give myself a year to try writing a novel that I'd always sort of been thinking about writing. And you know, that one year turned into a few years and, (laughs) I think really from when I started it till when it was published, it was about five years maybe. Um, and so I I mean, I, I think for a long time I considered myself a writer. I'm not sure it was it certainly wasn't until the other Alcott came was published that I felt like a real author. And then I had sort of a book in my hands that I yeah. could hold and sort of point to. But I, I definitely have always thought of myself as a reader and a writer.
0: I love it. So for our listeners quickly just tell us your three titles and then we're going to go back to The Other Alcott just for a second because I have something to relate to it. (laughs) Well, a couple of things to relate to it, but but go ahead and tell us our three titles. So my listeners like, what are she talking about? (laughs) Right. Okay. So
1: my first novel, my debut novel is called The Other Alcott and that's about the Alcott sisters as in Louisa May Alcott and Mm -hmm. her less famous younger sister who's Amy for Little Women fans. Mm -hmm. But in real life, she went on to have a, a fascinating career as a professional painter. Mm-hmm. And my second book was on learning to see. Uh, it was called Learning to See and that was about Dorothea Lange who is a photographer a lot of people don't initially recognize the name. But then when I show this oh, photograph.
0: photograph. So I wish my listeners could see the photograph because they would know. Is this photograph on your website by chance? If it's oh, not, it I is,
1: will send it to you. So, yeah, you can, do
0: yeah. so we can put it up because that is like an iconic photograph, right? It absolutely
1: is. It's in like yeah. every American history textbook. And, exactly. and I think, yeah. Um, and that was my second book. And now my book that will be coming out in July is called Fast Girls. And it is about three women track stars of the 1930s.
0: Oh, so super cool. So all the stuff that I love, right? History, women. um, So I love it. But we're going to go back to Little Women for just a second. So this is the funniest thing. It is now 2020. And I just last night, because my husband's been out of town during this whole COVID thing for a week, and I finally got to catch up on a whole bunch of stuff. One is the new Little Women movie. I wanted to see it the minute it came out, you know, and I didn't get to see it. Because for me, that book was profound. And I actually named our youngest daughter after Beth, the one in the story that passes, she's nothing really like her, but I just fell in love with that character and, and everything. Well, there's some similar similarities. And so it's always been a huge thing in my life, the story of um, writing and how powerful it was for women and how she told that story, the freedom around it for, for a woman in that time period. Um, so that is like a huge thing. So I think it's, fascinating that you wrote about her and her sister, because a lot of people don't really know her particular story and her sister's story. So it's very, very exciting. Um, So cool. So let's talk about um, your writing process. Has it been different for each one of your books? So do you get the idea and then you start with research? Kind of walk us through that. Right.
1: Well, I will say, <laughs> wherever I tend to start with a novel idea is never where I actually land. Yeah. So in the case of The Other Alcott, my first novel, I, when I said about writing that and researching it, I really did think it was going to be about Louisa May Alcott, that she was going to be my main character. And as I Dug into the history, I realized... And I was really interested in the period of After Little Women was written because mm-hmm. that really profoundly changed the Alcott's life. I mean, something yep. people don't realize is that they were not just kind of, um, like, poor, like, in the movie, but they still have, like, pretty yeah, they dresses or whatever.
0: Opinions. They, had a they were of- poor to
1: the point of having kind of apple gruel sometimes for Thanksgiving. Yep. I mean, they really were teetering on the edge their yeah. whole lives. Yeah. And that's a whole other story. Yeah. But, exactly. but I really was interested in this idea of um, I mean, Louisa Malcott actually also had a fairly complicated relationship with this book that really turned her career around. Yeah, she and, did a And so list. I was interested in all of that. Mm-hmm. And but also at the same time then this period that I'm interested in is what is this like to have a novel come out about your life that isn't fully your life you know Yeah,
0: exactly a historical history. version of the life but not right.
1: really right yeah louisa actually is largely housebound starting in uh, 1868 which is when this novel comes out not completely but she was starting to have major health problems as a mm-hmm. result of contracting typhoid fever when she worked as a union army nurse during the civil war mm-hmm. and so you know, there's not much as a novelist to write about, about someone just sitting in their room all the time writing, which is exactly. more or less what <laughs> Louisa was doing in that period. And so while well, this book started as a passion project about the Alcotts, because I'd grown up with the, I, I loved these figures, these women I then, it sort of pivoted and became a real exploration of women artists during the 1800s, especially the late 1800s, specifically really the 1870s, which is a time when in art history in general, everything's flipped on its head because in Europe, the Impressionists are starting to upend everything. And so it's a really interesting period. And and what I uncovered was that May Alcott, this youngest sister of the Alcotts, had just this fascinating life of her own and was a trailblazer in many ways, in her own right. And mm-hmm. it's really one of the few stories, few sort of women I can think of. You know, if you go into a bookstore or the library, you see all these titles in historical fiction, like the so-and-so's wife, the so-and-so's yep. daughter, the so-and-so's yep. lover. Yeah, Because these women have been overshadowed by the men in their lives, yeah, right? Absolutely, yeah. The Alcott sisters are so unique in that May was really eclipsed by her much more famous older sister. So it's mm-hmm. actually a really interesting story of a woman who's been living in the shadows of another famous woman. So I mm-hmm. think that's a really interesting thing too about the Alicots. I mean, I can talk about the Alicots for weeks. How oh. do have? And you <laughs> and much much I could do have? a
0: whole podcast on it, which maybe we will do someday. <laughs> right,
1: right. I mean, there's so much to talk. They were such an interesting family.
0: And they were so different and untraditional than any family that probably they're around with- oh, yeah would cause so much waste. I mean, I think they present that in the movie just a little bit, but not nearly as much as what reality would have been for the two of them. So. Right. I think
1: Greta Gerwig's version certainly hints at it the most mm-hmm. too, of any of the yeah. adaptations. Yeah. So, so, um, I, like, where did we start with this question? How does my own writing the process? So, process. So, so in the case of The Other Alcott, right, I started thinking I was writing about Louisa, and then I ended up writing about May. Yeah. In the case of um, Dorothea Lang, I started off, Okay. So after the other Alcott, I decided I need to write a project closer to home. I cannot keep traveling across the country to do my research. Like I did. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. right. So, um, I thought I was going to write about Imogen Cunningham, who is another photographer, uh, well-known for her work in the early 1900s. And she was born in Portland, attended the university of Washington and her first photography studio was in pioneer square. So she was really interesting. And I started, I start my research and I'm digging around in her life. And, and as part of my research, I always kind of want to understand the milieu in which these people resided in. So yeah. I'm looking at her friends and influences and I, I kind of come across Dorothea Lang, who ends up becoming Imogen's best friend when Imogen eventually moves to the Bay Area. And Dor- a young Dorothea Lang has just landed in San Francisco from New York. And they form a really interesting friendship. And suddenly I was making the connection between Dorothea, whose work I had used in, for years in my mm-hmm. high school classrooms when teaching mm-hmm. the Great Depression, the Greats of Wrath, all of that yep. period, um, the internment of Japanese Americans, mm-hmm. so much history of the 30s and 40s, Dorothea mm-hmm. Lange captured. But I really didn't know anything about her. And so suddenly I'm being introduced to this woman at the very start of her career, and there's a real difference in the work she's producing in San Francisco at the beginning, you know, in the early 1920s when she's launched this very what becomes a very successful photography studio, a portrait studio for for the city's essentially like wealthy society. Mm-hmm. And then the work that we know of that she's made most famous, she is most famous from in the 30s of of these um, homeless figures, these migrant workers. And even her work in the 40s during the war period. I mean, she is a real activist, I would say, later in her life. And I really wanted to understand that transformation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What happened? What made her do that? Because so few of her peers did anything similar. Mm -hmm. And so, again, here I am starting one place and ending somewhere really different. So, So I always point that out because while it's really probably an inefficient way to work, I mean, for me, it's always kind of the fun of the journey, to be honest. I love that period of exploration when I I think I'm going one direction and then I I find something that I just kind of can't turn away from. And it really captivates me. I mean, that is always such an exciting part of producing anything creative. Yeah. So that's a big part of my process is just kind of exploration. And then I usually do enough research to kind of understand my basic timeline and mm-hmm. sort of where I'm going with my main character. And I start even writing because I really want that character's journey to, um, to really be the backbone of the story I'm telling. And often while I'm writing, then I start putting in Xs and things, and then I start going back and I, I need to figure out, what were roads like in the 1930s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or what were people wearing? Or if you were chewing gum in 1932, yep. what brands were you, you know, all yep. of
0: that. So all i other of, stuff that can yeah. sideline the story as a writer, right? We can get right. bogged down with looking that stuff up and not actually getting through the storyline. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, yep.
1: so many times those discoveries are really interesting in mm-hmm. their own. And you could mm-hmm. spend, I mean, those could be their own books sometimes exactly. too. Yep. So- it really is a matter of kind of staying focused. So, so when people always ask, do I write or research first? I, I often the process is kind of um, like a, a seesaw. I'm going back and forth between yeah. writing and really getting down my story and then kind of going back and figuring out um, details from the time, everything from language to kind of mm-hmm. setting mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I'm always asked, do I have a real writing routine? Am I writing at a specific yeah. time of day? Yeah. The answer is no, not really for me. I wish I did, but I have two kids of my own and I I swear anytime I decide I'm going to have a really big (laughs) writing day I have someone home sick from school or something absolutely
0: I've learned right
1: (laughs) I know I've learned to be really flexible I do a lot of writing sometimes sitting in my minivan next Mm -hmm. to I have a daughter who's a swimmer sometimes next to pools um I I am very much a mercenary writer I sit down wherever I am and and do what I need to 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 make that book happen
0: I love that. I love the term mercenary writer. That's fantastic. (laughs) I felt like I was a mercenary student because I went back to school when my kids were going back to school. And both of our girls were competitive swimmers. So I was constantly in the minivan or up in the stadium while they're watching in between their events because competitive swimming is individual but group, right? So I could go for quite a while and read something. And then all of a sudden, one of them's up on ready to go. (laughs) I know, and, and it happens fast. You better yeah, be paying like attention. You better watch because you're going to miss right. it. Yeah, I loved when they were competitive. swimming; it was so much fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so so very, very cool. So this um, third book of yours about the Olympians is coming out July, correct, of yes, July 7th, yep. Okay. And so listeners, you're probably it's probably out by the time this episode comes out, which is super exciting. So tell us just a little bit of background about that one because we haven't touched on that one at all. Right. Well, this one
1: has been such a fun journey, too. Um, I was actually kind of in the very early stages of starting a different novel when when I came into this idea. But my younger daughter, who at the time was in fourth grade, was doing a, bio, a biography project. And as I said, she's a swimmer. She tro- chose to do her project on Gertrude Ederle who is, I did not know this, but she was the first woman to swim the English Channel. Mm -hmm. She was also an Olympian uh, who won several medals. And she was a really big deal in the 1920s, like a major celebrity. And uh, I had never heard of her. And I was, I, you know, my first couple books have been about artists, but all of a sudden I, you know, I have been playing sports my whole life. I continue to play competitive tennis. I am running, all that stuff. So I... All of a sudden realize, wait a minute, what is what's happening with pioneering women athletes? I really don't know much about that. But at the same time, I love sports stories. Mm-hmm. And I think the best sports stories are are really sort of mirrors of whatever's happening in a larger society, right? Exactly. Um, and so, and, and boy, I mean, these Olympians of the 1930s are exactly that. It's such an interesting period as far as the Great Depression. And also, of course, you know, these 1936 Olympics in Berlin, overseen by Hitler and the, the National Socialist Party. So it's just so, it was so interesting on so many levels. So I started digging around and the first of these athletes that I found was Betty Robinson. And she was a track star. She was the first woman. Well, the first year women were allowed to compete in track and field was in Amsterdam in 1928. Up till then the Olympics had for women had mainly been golf and tennis and swimming, diving, a few fencing, a few other things. Um, And so, So all of a sudden this Betty Robinson kind of comes out of nowhere. She was a Chicago schoolgirl, and truly her, her, one of her teachers from school spotted her running for the train and thought, wow, she looks fast. (laughs) And I mean, that's how it happened. So he did a time trial with her and within a few months she is, she's qualified for the Olympics and she's on her way to Amsterdam as the 17 year old girl. And she, it was 1920. It was not a great year for the U.S. at the Olympics. We had kind of a rough year, and it was blamed on all kinds of things, from weather to tired male athletes. But mm-hmm. Betty ended up really being as a real underdog. She won a gold medal. So not only was it the first year women are allowed to compete in track and field, but she then is the first American to win a gold medal in track and field. And she came home feted as America's golden girl. And then things get really crazy because as she's preparing to uh, train for 1932 Olympics in Los Angeles, she's actually in a plane crash and mm-hmm. left for dead. I mean, she truly, her body is like thrown into the back of the truck and brought to a funeral home. Mm-hmm. And it's not until the undertaker sees her chest moving that they realize, wait a minute, this girl isn't dead. That's
0: horrifying. And isn't
1: it? <laughs> I know. <And laughs>
0: it's it's,
1: an, it's amazing. And so the doctors have, I mean, she is sort of patched back together. She has broken legs and a broken arm. And the doctors say, you know, you'll be lucky to ever walk again, much less run. You know, good luck. We just need to get you someday walking again. But Betty was not to be deterred. And, and she is this amazing story of a really phenomenal comeback. And I, as I'm reading about her, I just couldn't believe that we hadn't heard of this woman. I mean, it's really such a dramatic story.
0: Yeah, that, that it ha- isn't something we're teaching in school. <laughs> right, right. Yes, I mean, right. she was such a trailblazer, such
1: an inspiring story. And so right then and there, I knew she was one of my main characters. And and then I was, I, I really, through researching more track and field from this period, was able to find two other women who who had really different experiences from Betty, all three of these women, including Betty then, um, And they provide each of them such an interesting view into the 1930s and the women's experiences. Um, So so I then kind of started to form the story off of the lives of these three women, all of whom are really significant to American athletic history, for sure. And I hadn't heard of any of them. And so I really wanted to, to remedy that.
0: I think it's so. fantastic. I think your book could be something that should be taught in school, right? It would be so cool to have it added into the curriculum so that so that young ladies can see there was some very great history that maybe hasn't always been used or shared. <laughs> so, right, I
1: mean, we know about Jesse Owens. We know about The Boys in the Boat and Louis Zamperini of Unbroken, but it was really exciting and so interesting to learn about these women from the same period, none of whom really we know much about.
0: So what happened to you when you did the research and you're like, wait a minute, and I'm sure you went and looked to see if any authors have also done any works on these three women, and you realized that there was nothing, if very little, what did that do for you? Were you like, Oh my gosh, this is like, I have to do this. You know, what was your feelings? <laughs> oh
1: yeah. I mean, I, I knew I had to do it. There are some nonfiction books about these women. So they, you know, it wasn't, I didn't sort of discover them somewhere. Uh, they, they, there, there have been great works on them. And in fact, that's, those were my starting points. Mm-hmm. So I was reading nonfiction books and biographies on them and, and really I was relying very heavily on newspapers from the time. Mm-hmm. Um, newspapers.com is like one of my favorite places. It's the
0: best. It's one I teach to my authors, friends. Yeah. Oh,
1: it's an amazing resource. And so I, I mean, I can't even, I read hundreds, thousands, I don't even know how many articles Mm -hmm. to get a sense of the time and also how people were talking about these women, because it was definitely a different tone than the men. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to understand all of that. And, And I actually ended up writing some newspaper stories of my own for this novel. um, kind of using the language from the time to give readers really that sense of of differentness than than the men.
0: Very smart. That's great. I love it. I love it. So let's talk just a little bit. So we will you're gonna get into the reading of that particular novel later on. So you listeners are gonna get to hear that. So super exciting. But I think all three Three of your books would be wonderful um, to read, but we'll get into that one. So take us through just shortly a little bit about your journey to publication, because I do have a lot of individuals that listen that are like me, that are writing their first novel. They want to hear how it happened, right? Did you get an agent first for your first book? Kind of, how did it happen (laughs) for you? Well,
1: you know, it's actually kind of amazing to me in some ways that I was writing the other Alcott for years on my own in a Word document on my laptop. I mean, I'm dedicating hours every day, including weekends, and I had two little kids running around. Um, I was working on this novel. It was really something I just, I really wanted to write, and I had no idea what was ever going to happen to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was taking some classes at Hugo House. I did a workshop. Um, held by some agents, and they were all, like, we kind of had to share our idea, and they all <laughs> were kind of like, this is a great idea, like, you need to finish this project, mm-hmm. and so that really helped to galvanize me, and um, so, again, I, I kept writing. I revised so much. I had several different writing groups I was working with. Um, I mean, I really was doing everything I could. I started attending different Um, author visits to Seattle to hear Mm -hmm. other people talk about writing I was I got really into this and essentially I guess also my real passion for this but I mean one piece of advice I would give if if I were ever to give any advice is like you really have to write something you're passionate about and and like I was saying I I had no idea what was ever going to happen to this and Honestly, I was kind of writing the book I wanted to read more than anything. Mm-hmm. I really yeah. wanted to know what happened. Yeah. And so at a certain point, I realized I had taken this as far as I could. I mean, mm-hmm. I had gone through countless revisions, had different readers go through. I had just friends who weren't necessarily writers, but just liked to read. And I had them read it. And I had my family read it. And, and then friends who were also interested in writing. So I had sort of real writers groups, and I reached a point where I was kind of like, okay, I mean, I can keep pushing commas around, but at the, <laughs> at the end of the day, I am done with this. I think yeah. as far as I can go. And I think that was really important. I think sometimes people kind of rush that process. Mm-hmm. Yep. I did I, I don't know. I, I knew probably there was room for it to get better, but I just didn't know how else to get there. Yeah. And so I did, um, you know, for me, uh, I could easily suss out what are called comp titles like comparative books mm-hmm. that yep. uh, yeah like other biographical fiction books were sort of my target. So I always went, um, either to the library or to bookstores and, or the books I was reading, cause I was also reading a ton in that mm-hmm. area. Um, I would always note who the agent was in the back and, you know, every author thanks their agent in their acknowledgements. Yes. And so I would make a note of that. And I, I, I developed a list boy. I probably had like 60 something agents on that list. And I decided to kind of test the waters and I sent, Uh, you know, every agent also wants their own thing. I mean, some people want 10 pages. Some want a first chapter. It's all over the map. So I figured out my six agents I was going to just try things with. Mm -hmm. And I I wrote a query letter. I did a lot of research on query letters and how you do them. Oh my gosh, I did so much research. And then I took the big plunge. I don't think I slept a single minute the night I first sent out my first sort of query emails. Exactly. It's so nervous. <laughs> I know. And so I I said I sent out six. I heard back from one pretty quickly wanting more. I guess I heard back from all, from five out of six, all wanting to see more. One passed pretty quickly, saying the voice didn't connect with her, but Also, pretty quickly... I mean, it was also the holidays. It was Christmas. So that was kind of weird. But right after the new year, I remember this so clearly. I was walking up the street to pick up one of my kids from elementary school. And I think it was an email I got from an agent saying, I am really interested in this book. I love it. Um, Let's set up a call. I am interested in representing you. And... Oh, cool. Oh, my gosh. It changed everything. I mean, yeah. She was... Really passionate about my book, had some ideas on how we could sell it. She also had some ideas for how we could improve it. And so Mm -hmm. we worked on revisions for about two months before it went out on submission. And, you know, the other thing was one of the first things she asked me on that phone call, and I think this is really important for writers to remember, is she said, What are you working on now? Mm -hmm. And thank God I had some answers because. Mm -hmm you know, an agent wants to see that you are interested in continuing to write and they kind of want to know what, what else is coming. So fortunately I had an answer for that. And so she took it out to I don't know even how many editors, but we had an offer within the week on the other. Alpha. Oh,
0: that's so fantastic! Yeah. From- the one thing that is, if you just like fast track to, I got an agent and had an offer offer within the week in your story. That is not telling all the story because you worked on the book for so long and you did all the research. You did you did what I've been hearing. You you did it right, where you were researching authors in your genre, I mean, agents in your genre, reading authors they've represented, and narrowing it down, and then you spent a lot of time on that. And I think that's so valuable of a lesson to hear from you. So thank you for sharing that.
1: Let me just emphasize, I mean, I think that's so important, because you only get one shot, right, Mm -hmm. within it. You can't, like, revise your work, and then, I mean, sometimes an agent will be interested and say make these revisions and then let's see it again. They like Mm -hmm. send it to me again, but not very often. So really, I think as a, as an author or or someone who wants to have a book published, you have to do everything you can to get that novel to as far along as you can take it before you start testing the waters out because you don't want to send out a novel that, that, you know, needs work, like, you know, what you could do to make it better that because you only get, as I said, that one shot with those agents you really want.
0: Yep, exactly. Well, bravo. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so much. And I, I really love that journey because um, I, I've only been working on my book publicly. I've written it, but I'm still working on it for about going on two years, as long as the podcast. So the podcast was asking a lot of authors, how they got to publication. And then I'm like, this is so much great information. We need to put in a podcast. And, and so then that kind of took over the life of writing. Um, but I think it's so valuable for even readers to know that when they get a book in their, in their hand, it's not necessarily the author just sat there and wrote it up one night and it went off to publication. There's so much that goes behind that book in your hands that makes it almost more valuable as a reader. You know, I I just feel like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, there are the occasional story of an author who whips out a book in like a week or a couple nights. I don't, I cannot relate
0: to that at all. I can't either. (laughs) And I had some of my show that are just pumping them out and I'm like, I don't, I don't know how you do it. So (laughs) that's okay. Your journey is valuable. I'm not going to be there. <laughs> right. So, right. It
1: takes as long as it takes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So before we go into the reading, um, give us what your, and it could be your overall inspiration for writing. Cause I know you've written three different types of story, well, and three different eras of stories, but what is the one thing that super keeps you going as an author?
1: Oh, that's so easy. I just love to learn about these things. I just, I mean, every book is a real process of discovery. And I love that. I mean, I think that's why I teach too. I love to learn. So, I mean, I I love that writing is something you just keep working on, working on trying to get better and better. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe someone out there thinks they've kind of reached the point where they have nothing left to learn. I can't imagine that. So I like that, but I really just love to learn about all this stuff.
0: Oh, I love it. And I think that's one of the best inspirations, honestly. I talk to my students. I work with adult students getting their bachelor's, but I also am developing an online course for authors in research. And um, so I talk all the time about the ideal student is a lifelong learner. No matter what subject it is, you have to be willing to be open to learn more and experience more and be a lifelong learner to be the ideal student. So, So I think that helps with the writing process too, and the craft of writing. Cause we do get a lot of feedback and sometimes the feedback doesn't make you feel great. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. You got to learn, right? <laughs> I know. I
1: mean, I think something about feedback is, you know, even sometimes feedback is paired with a suggestion and that suggestion may not be always the right one, but I think whatever is prompting that suggestion is very important, be it pacing or perspective yeah. or something. There's always an element of truth. to you know good feedback that I think you know you ignore at your own peril
0: well what I've discovered with my writer group I'm in a pretty good writers group with all published authors at different stages and we're working I'm working on my first draft well first book not my first draft but they're each working on different drafts versions of whatever book. and when I get feedback from something that kind of irritates me I'm like oh I better t- pay attention because what they're saying is bugging me enough that if a reader says this to me, it's something I've missed. And I'd rather have my author friend bring it up to me than be at yeah. a reading and having somebody say it to me. I'm like, oh, dang. So at first I was terrified of feedback. Now I love it. I just yeah. can't get enough of it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. You want as much of it as you can get before your book is done. That's for exactly. sure.
0: Exactly. Alrighty, so why don't you set the stage for us, give us a little bit of whatever background to the story that you're going to share with us before you do your reading, and remind us of the title too, because we mentioned it beforehand, I want to make sure that we all know which title you're reading from, and I'll go quiet, my listeners know I like to listen on mute so I can hear you, and then I'll take a self-podcast. Great, so um, this is from
1: Fast Girls, which is my new book that's coming out July 7th, and This is about these three women Olympians uh, who will all come together to race in the 1936 games. Um, I'm going to read you a couple bits from 1928. So I'm backing it up. These women were different ages. Um, I'm going to start with Helen, who later becomes the Fulton Flash out of Missouri. Um, And we'll see, you know, how far in I get. I'm not sure I'll get to all three, like, chapters from all three women during this brief reading. But this will give you a little flavor. I chose this chapter specifically because Helen is the youngest of these Olympians. And so she is the one, at least in my book, who has a bit of a bird's eye view into the others because she's reading about them in the newspapers. Now, this isn't fully accurate, I should add, because these women weren't all super aware of each other, just news being what it was back in the 20s and 30s. It wasn't like today where you have sort of constant barrage of news and social media to make you aware of everything. But um, Helen was, in fact, following the Olympics. We know certainly as early as 1932, the games in Los Angeles she was paying attention to, and she became a fan uh, from a distance of Babe Didrikson, of course, who got a lot of press during the 1932 games. But in this book, she is even aware of 1928, which isn't totally out of gr- crazy because she has an accident in 1928 that's happened in an earlier chapter where she has damaged her vocal cords, which will go on to kind of impact her voice and give her a low gruff voice for the rest of her life. Um, And so she actually had to spend the whole summer just lying in bed kind of reading, which I think is the beginning of Helen being also a bit bookish and kind of scholarly in an unexpected way for a lot of people because she was known as such an athlete. Sometimes people are a little surprised to hear that she was such a reader as well. So here we go. I'll start us off in July of 1928 in Fulton, Missouri. So Dr. McCubbin hadn't been joking when he had told Helen that her summer would be quiet. She felt like she had been stuck in bed forever. Through the languid days of July, Helen read The Boxcar Children. She read it so many times, she started creating her own stories about Henry, Jesse, Violet, and Benny in her head. But one morning, Mama left the Missouri Daily Observer next to Helen's bed, and she picked it up. The paper was a couple weeks old, but it was something different. Helen thumbed through the sections until she noticed an article titled Chicago's Betty Robinson to sail for the Olympics. And she read about a 16-year-old girl from Chicago who could run so fast that she was being sent to Amsterdam, a small city in the Netherlands, to compete against athletes from every far-flung corner on Earth. Argentina, Estonia, Egypt, India, Japan, New Zealand, Rhodesia, South Africa. Yes, everywhere, it seemed. Helen reached to her dresser and pulled her beloved globe onto her map. Mama often quizzed her on the locations of various countries and cities in the evenings, and Helen had won a, a school geography beat the previous year. She spun the globe so the United States faced her, and then she leaned in. She found Chicago and traced the letters of its name crawling out across the blue of Lake Michigan. Slowly, she rotated the globe, sliding her index finger along the country across the wide expanse of the Atlantic until she reached the coast of Europe and the huge green expanse of France. Just north lay a tiny blob of yellow marked Belgium, and above that there was a splotch of pink labeled Netherlands. Quite a distance separated Chicago from the Netherlands. What would it be like to get on a ship and travel so far from home? Helen placed the globe on the bedside next to her next to her and clutched the newspaper closer scanning the article to find where it described how athletes from countries all over the world would convene to participate in a series of competition all thoughts of the boxcar children pale next to the cast of characters described in the newspaper articles boxers cyclists gymnasts equestrians soccer and field hockey players most of the athletes would be men but a small group of women would also be competing including betty This would be the first time women could compete in track and field. A grainy photograph of the girl from Chicago caught Helen's eye. A man stood next to her. Even in the black and white image, anyone could plainly see how tightly his arm wrapped around the girl's shoulders, how wide his smile stretched. According to the article, the man was the girl's father and it quoted him saying, Without any sons, I never imagined I'd have a girl competing in the Olympics. I couldn't be prouder of her. Helen read this quote over and over. She couldn't imagine her stern-eyed father ever saying something similar. Frank Stevens didn't believe in spending time on doling out compliments. His his life was one of singular focus, farming. He believed in operating his 140-acre farm the old-fashioned way, with guts and muscle. No fangled John Deere machines for him, thank you very much. Even at 10 years old, Helen understood that part of Pa's disdain for tractors and threshers stemmed from his inability to pay for the equipment. He farmed his land with a plow and a horse and dismissed what he called the easy way to a dollar. In the photo of Betty, her short blonde hair curled to frame her face. Her grin glimmered off the page as if she hadn't a care in the world. Helen smiled back at the image. She tried to forget the birthmark staining her forehead, her unruly hair, enormous feet and clumsy limbs. But her smile slackened, thinking how her classmates taunted her with things like Helen the Huge and Smelly Helly. She sighed, folding the article so the picture of Betty disappeared from view. Helen could run fast. None of the boys at school would dispute that. But being someone like Betty Robinson felt about as achievable as becoming the Queen of England. Still, she opened the newspaper again to view the article once more. Could Betty really win? Helen pulled the page with Betty's story from the newspaper and tucked it under her bed, vowing to keep her eye out for any more updates. She needed to see what would happen next to this girl. So uh, I'll go into the next chapter, which actually takes us into uh, August of 1928 in Amsterdam, which was this Olympics that Betty is competing in. Uh, Aboard the ferry on her way to Central Station, Betty drummed her fingers along the windows railing. Clouds, clouds, not clouds, clouds scudded low overhead, the morning's downpour having done little to rid the air of humidity. It was the day of the 100-meter finals, and she was the only American woman left in competing. She wrapped her arms around her belly to stop the flip-flopping sensation inside her. Deep inhalations would help, but who wanted to breathe in the putrid stench of the canal's brackish water? When Betty and her teammates arrived at the stadium, they exited the bus and stood on the sidewalk, shifting their weight from foot to foot, awed by the throngs of spectators bustling past and honking from snarled traffic. Caroline reached and squeezed reached out and squeezed Betty's hand. Good luck. Knock dead. Betty thanked her as the rest of the girls crowded around, rubbing her shoulders and slapping her back. Mrs. Allen brushed Betty's hair off her shoulder. Go get changed. I'll meet you in the locker room after settling the girls in some seats. Betty said goodbye to her friends, and they strolled away, giggling about something, and Betty watched them, twisting the edge of her Peter Pan collar between her fingers. She squared her shoulders and entered the long corridor toward the locker room. The thud of her heel striking the ground echoed with each step she took. A metallic-smelling mixture of rainwater and newly poured cement wafted over her. She entered the locker room and found three Canadians gathered between a row of lockers, talking and laughing. In the next row, two Germans sat on the bench between the lockers, their, serious, their expression serious as they cleaned dirt from their running spikes. Betty passed them, found an empty row, dropped her bag on a bench, and slumped down next to it, gnawing on the cuticle of her index finger. Never had she felt so alone. If only Caroline or Elta were there with her, even Dee would have been better than being alone. Her heel jiggled up and down, but she pressed on it to stop. I cannot be nervous anymore. I've got a job to do. She repeated these two sentences over and over. Each time she recited them, her mind cleared a little from the anxiety swirling inside it. She stood, stretched out her long legs, and hopped up and down a few times. Her shoulders dropped, and the jitters in her belly settled. She closed her eyes, raised her hands above her head, and pictured herself leaning into the finish tape. Yes. Opening her eyes, she smiled, bent over her bag, and pulled out her white shorts and top along with her navy blue sweatsuit and track shoes. Once she changed, she sat down to put on her track shoes. First, she slid her, left, her foot into the left shoe and laced it, listening to the guttural sound of the German athletes talking. She started to slide her right foot into the other shoe, but her foot jammed inside, Perplexed, she lifted the shoe for closer inspection and her breath caught. It was a second left shoe. Two left shoes. How had this happened? Panic rose inside her and she spun toward her bag, rummaging through it to find a shoe for her right foot. Nothing. She blinked. Could she run barefoot? Even if officials allowed it, which she doubted, the sharp surface of the track would ruin her feet. Clutching the shoe to her chest, she ran, limping unevenly on one shoe toward the door of the stadium. With each step, the roar of the crowd became louder and louder. As she lunged for the doorknob, it opened toward her. Mrs. Allen stepped into the locker room, squinting as her, adjust, as her eyes adjusted to the dim lighting. Heavens, Betty, you nearly gave me a fright. She raised a hand to her chest. Are you ready, dear? I have two left shoes, I, Betty stammered. I own two pairs of track shoes, and somehow I grabbed only the left ones this morning. Saying the words out loud made her predicament real, and she blinked back tears. What am I going to do? All right. All right. Don't panic. You stay here. I'll hurry down and coach and speak with Coach Shepherd to see what he thinks. You go back and sit down. What about my race? Doesn't it start soon? Mrs. Allen inspected her wristwatch. Yes, dear, it does. Sit tight. I'll be back in a jiffy. Betty's hands dropped to her side and she returned to her bench and sat, her head falling into her hands. The Canadians passed by on their way to the doorway, looking curiously at her. Betty's face burned. Somewhere nearby, a leaky faucet dripped, each drop echoing through the otherwise silent room. Her throat tightened and tears burned at the corner of her eyes, but she blinked them away. This was no time to fall apart. From a distant corner of the locker room, a door slammed. Footsteps slapped along the floor, getting louder and louder. Betty? Betty, where are you? Caroline rounded the corner and stopped, panting. Whoa, that was close. Here's your shoe, but there's no time to put it on now. Officials are checking racers into your event. Come on. She thrusted Betty's right shoe at her. Betty grabbed it and chased after Caroline. How in the world did you get this so quickly? You better forgive Dee for all her snoring. You know how she was planning to catch a later ferry. Caroline pushed out of the locker room door and studied the track below. Hmm. Looks like the judges are taking a quick break. Put on the shoe now, but hurry. Well, before she left our cabin, Dee noticed two right shoes and had the presence of mind to figure out what you had done and take one for you. She found us in the stadium and gave it to me. Lucky break, huh? Crouching down, lacing up her shoes, Betty sucked in her breath, amazed. Around her, colorful flags waved and cigarette smoke clouded over the crowd. People sang and called out to the athletes in languages she didn't understand. The noise was deafening, so loud it became meaningless. A background roar. She peered through the thicket of people surrounding her, knowing that somewhere down there, the track lay below. Within minutes, she would be racing and the outcome would be decided. She just needed to push forward. Let's go, urged Caroline, urging her toward the uh, t- turning toward Betty, her eyes wide with worry. An odd sense of calm descended over Betty. I'm ready. And there we go. I'll
0: stop there. Oh, my goodness. I am so hooked. You know what I love is that you uh, captured the possible anxiety that would be there I mean terrifying and I would be known for one to do a mistake like that I know
1: (laughs) I know and she actually did that she did show up as a 16 year old kid with these two left I mean of all things too two left shoes right like (laughs) (laughs) such a cliche
0: How wonderful. And what a great piece of little history that had you not done the research and you could write that in there. What a a great um, aspect of that. So I'm super excited. I want to read the rest of the book. I hope listeners, you're hooked like I am. You got to hear about what else happens to these uh, wonderful ladies. Um, So before I take out the podcast, why don't you share with us one more bit of advice that you would give to uh, an author or writer that's working on publishing for the first time like me?
1: Well, I would say to read. Read as much as you can. I know sometimes writers um, are nervous that if they read, they'll somehow, like, absorb too much of what they're reading. And, um, but read widely and read different things from what you're writing. And um, I learn so much every time I read a book about structure, about voice... Uh, I learn all kinds of things. I, I I pay attention and I always feel like, of course, the sign of a good book is when I stop paying attention to some of those craft things and just lose myself in the story. But I really think you can't read too much as a writer. I think there's always uh, things to be learned and also just kind of then your understanding of what the book market looks like these days, you know, what books are out there and what are people reading and all of that good stuff.
0: Uh, some great advice. I'm going to take it. I am a, I'm a huge reader, so that's never been the issue, but I think it's really smart to um, keep an eye on the market because it changes often um, what's being sold and what people are picking up and and reading. So, so awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Love to have you back when your next book comes out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. um, So stay in touch and we will talk to you again soon.
1: Great. Thanks so much, Vicki.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter where you can be entered automatically each month to win a signed free copy of a book from an author that's appeared on the podcast. You can find out more at our website, www.squishpin.com. And finally, if you're an author in the Pacific Northwest and you would like to appear on the show, you can find out more on our website. So until next week, I hope you enjoy the journey. This is Vicki J. Carter signing off.